0: Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and tomorrow I will be competing in a Smash Brothers tournament. And I'm Michael Ralph, and tomorrow I will be competing in a volleyball tournament. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue.
1: So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer.
0: Today, we are drinking Grand Sport Porter from the Coop Ale Works from, Canada, from Oklahoma City. You said Coop. That's what
1: I said. I have always, in my internal monologue, pronounced it co op.
0: I'm sure it is co op. That's interesting. Well, I didn't. I'm sure it's co op now. <laughs> do you want to model the struggle or do you want to retape it? No, no. I think this whole thing should be on air. So, uh, All yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: That is the
0: verticality of a porter, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, man. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm cheating to avoid that. Because I really don't like foamy heads on my beers. I just want to get to the liquid, please. It's dark. We're back to the co- the
1: coffee infusion that so many of, so many of the our porters have. Uh, but I'm excited. I don't think I've drank very many beers out of Oklahoma before. That was what I was most excited about, was getting, um, getting a sample from some people south of our local border. What are we doing today, chum? Today, we're joined by Jennifer Pusateri, and we'll discuss how Universal Design for Learning, or UDL, could help us remove barriers to learning for our students. We'll consider how being reflective in our practice could help us identify how we can better serve each of our students. Later, we'll talk about how metadata might help us better understand our students' sense of self-efficacy in mathematics. And finally, in our Hot Off the Presses segment, we'll take a look at a new California law that has banned suspensions assigned for willful defiance. Let's get started. So for our first segment, we are joined by a guest, Jennifer Pusateri. Welcome, Jennifer. Hi, thanks for having me. We're excited to have you on to chat with us. Jennifer Pusateri works at the University of Kentucky to infuse universal design for learning into college instruction. She believes all students benefit from the opportunity to learn and show what they know in a variety of ways. Uh, We're so pleased
0: to have you on. Welcome. Hi, thanks so much. Our first uh, paper that we're discussing today is Organizing Inclusive Schools, uh, written by Kinsella published in 2018 in the International Journal of Inclusive Education. And it's about universal design, which is your area of expertise. So why don't we ask
1: you, what uh, what is uh, universal design for learning or UDL? So UDL
2: came out of the um, universal design movement, actually in architecture and product design. Um, and so it's things that we would know today um, that we see everywhere. Things like curb cutouts, the little ramp things that go from the sidewalk down to the road. Um, things like the automatic doors at the grocery store, um, those kinds of things were put in place for people, uh, for people who had specific needs, right? Physical needs to get from one place to another, to be able to exit or enter a store. Um, so all those things were put in place for that one particular group. What happens is the rest of us find really good uses for those things as well, um, so like uh, the curb cutouts in the street, um, I use those all the time. If I'm out, uh, maybe I'm walking with a, a baby in a stroller or maybe I have, um, maybe I'm someone who is walking with a, a walker if I'm older um, or a cane or any of those things. So the, the pieces that were put in place to benefit people with physical disabilities are now useful for the rest of us. So we translate that idea into education. Um, and so universal design for learning suggests that instead of trying to change the learner with accommodations and things like that, um, to fit into this, to, uh, fit into the actual education system that we have. So instead of doing that, what we should do is we should start changing the system so that it can fit a variety of learning needs. And that's really what we have in our classrooms is a huge variety of learning needs. Um, so our one size
0: fits all way to address that is really not, it's not working real well. So we've got issues of inclusion and we've got issues of universal design. And so- this paper was about inclusion. So what is inclusion and how is it better served through a systematic approach of universal design versus the current approach of special education practices?
2: So I guess at the beginning um, of what we would think of as, as special education, um, people were really just fighting for the right to actually have access to education, period. So that's kind of how that started. Um, and then when we started to get students in our classrooms that we didn't know what to do with, we as teachers, we started to look for ways to um, both accommodate those students in some way and also to make our, our jobs a little bit more um I guess, less stressful to make our, our jobs less stressful for us as teachers. It's really hard to teach students that have special needs if you are doing that in a traditional way. Um, so we moved at some point to having students with special needs in traditional schools, um, but they were in a separate area. Where when I was growing up, there was the special ed hallway. Like that was the hallway that all of the students who had um, uh, some kind of a special need, they were in that hallway and they very rarely interacted with the rest of the students. Um, and then we move to another model, which is sort of where we are sort of still living um, in education. And that's looking at something called differentiation. Um, and differentiation, as I'm sure you all know, is really about um, trying to meet the needs of the diverse learners in your classroom by creating different forms of fill in the blank. Right. So different different spelling lists aimed at different levels of of learning and. Um, some people will try to, to cater to learning styles, which is not a thing even. Um, learning styles is not a thing. So that's one way of differentiating. So differentiation sets the teacher up for failure, if you ask me, um, because it's, it's impossible to be able to teach each student in the way that they need to be taught at the same time. It's like a short order cook situation. Um, and so that's not working real well either. And so teachers are sort of at this place where they don't We don't want to leave students out, but we don't know how we don't know how to take care of everyone's learning needs at the same time when we have like 27, 35
1: students in our classroom. So that's the dilemma. That's kind of where we are right now in education. It's about if differentiation is I have to make a decision about what each of my 35 students in my classroom needs to be getting uh, on this day for this moment, I that it's not a leap to say that that's not feasible. That's not a reasonable expectation for one person. And so then it begs the question, I suppose, uh, because they are unique learners. They all have different background experiences. They all have different lived experiences. They all have uh, different needs and different challenges in front of them. So they are necessarily going to need different things. So then it begs the question, how can I change my approach to designing the system? How can I change my approach to designing my classroom paradigm uh, so that I can be set up to maybe approach this in a way that doesn't bottleneck at me as a teacher? Is that a, is that a reasonable next question? So let me use an example. Um, it's an
2: analogy that I've heard a couple people use. Katie Novak, who is a, a UDL guru, author, uh, speaker, et cetera. She's actually also the assistant superintendent of a, of a school district. So I don't know how she does all those things, but she does. But one of the analogies that I've heard Katie use and I've heard other people use as well is about um, thinking of teaching as throwing a dinner party. And so um, if I'm going to throw a dinner party in the traditional sense, I would decide that I'm going to create, I'm going to have one thing, right? I'm going to have, and I'm going to use a vegetable or a a Mexican lasagna as my example. So that's what I'm going to make. I found this great recipe. It's delicious and everybody loves it. And so we're going to have that at my party that I'm throwing, my imaginary party, right? And so that's really the traditional model of teaching. I'm going to do this one way and I'm going to hope for the best. And so what happens then is if this is a dinner party situation, well, maybe I send out an evite and then I get a text back from one of my friends saying, oh, hey, did you remember that we, um, that my husband is allergic to onions? And I'm like, wow, man. Okay, well, I mean, there are onions in the recipe. Um, Well, okay. So I guess what I'll do is I'll create a version of this uh, Mexican lasagna that's just normal, like the regular version. And then I'll just make a little small, tiny version of that with no onions okay so now I'm making the two things right so then I get another text from another friend let's say and they said hey did you remember that I'm a vegetarian and so I just wanted to check and see if there's going to be meat in this vegetarian or in this lasagna that you're creating this Mexican lasagna Um, and so now as the hostess I want to make sure that all the needs are met of the people that I'm inviting to this party so now I'm going to make my original Mexican lasagna now I'm also going to be making the version that doesn't have any onions in it And then I'm just going to create some, I don't know, beans and rice, I guess, for people who maybe are vegetarian. So now I'm creating these different meals, right? One after the other. And I'm making myself crazy as a host. So that's really kind of what differentiation looks like. It looks like making one change at one time for one student. Universal Design for Learning would say that let's just just take a pause right there. And instead of doing that, what if we thought about this in a different way? You can still have a, a... a delightful dinner party, but instead, why don't you create a taco bar? And so for this taco bar, you put all the individual ingredients out like you would, almost like you would see it like a Qdoba or something. And people can go through the line and get whatever it is that they are able to eat. Um, And so if we think about it from that way, in an an educational setting, that's really gonna meet the needs of the learners around me. I'm I'm incorporating student choice into that. I'm letting them choose something that will work for them. I'm letting them choose if they need extra help or not. Um, I'm letting them choose something that's going to motivate them and interest them as a learner. So that's really more of what universal design for learning is um, in that setting. And I I really like that analogy because I feel like it makes it a little more clear. It's kind of hard. It's a hard thing to grasp if you are thinking about it from a traditional
0: teaching mindset. So the analogy feels good, but... A classroom is, you know, this complex set of behaviors and response to stimuli and, and constructed uh, experiences presented and interacted with between teachers and students. So what would a taco bar look like if, if someone's like, yeah, I'm all in. Let's, let's, let's not make the lasagna. Let's go taco bar. What does that look like for a practitioner?
2: Yeah, I think it's hard for people to kind of grasp it at, at first um, because, my, you know, as a teacher myself, my immediate thought is, well, yeah, but you have to teach some things. Like you can't just say everybody picks what they get to do today and you can if you want to play video games online all day, you can do that. I mean, that's not reasonable, of course, right? So as a teacher, I'm trying to figure out how this kind of thing would work. So uh, the way that people think about this through a UDL lens, lens is um, the first thing you think about is your goal, right? So what is the goal of the lesson? And this would in most cases be whatever the standards are, um, if you use the Common Core or something else in the state that you live in. So whatever your goal is, and you think about that goal, and instead of going straight to, um, okay, how am I going to teach this? We want to think about what's the goal? And then what are all the different ways that I could get students to that goal? because it doesn't have to be reading a book and it doesn't have to be writing a paper as, as an assessment. So even though those things are kind of our default in education, um, it doesn't have to be like that. And so I can incorporate choices in some place in the lesson plan. So even if it's a lesson, let's say it's a lesson on writing where you actually like, like you have to write, it's a writing standard. Um, I can still offer students choices depending on whatever it is that we are learning about. So if we're learning about how to construct, um, a persuasive essay, then I don't necessarily care as a teacher what their persuasive essay is about. I can, put, uh, I can put the choices in by allowing them to choose whatever it is they would like to persuade me about. And so that is really one way to, to think about UDL is, is how can I incorporate some kind of student choice? Um, how can I get students to meet the goal that we're supposed to be working on? But have a way for them to have some agency and some um, some options in there as well.
1: Uh, so we're both we're both uh, science teachers. So I'm thinking about this from a from a science perspective. And I, what I really appreciate you emphasizing is being thoughtful about what are my specific priorities, and then pruning away all of the all of the prescription all of the pre-definition that I might include in that delivery that's not specifically in service to my priority. Because there's a lot of them. And especially when you take some time and really reflect on why am I doing this the way I'm doing it? its I know that I've been surprised on more than one occasion by how many things I take for granted that once, uh, especially now that I train teachers, they ask me, why does it have to be this way? And I find Oh my gosh, I have no idea why it has to be this way. There are all sorts of ways it could be. Uh, But something that comes out of of your comments just now that I think might be worth... commenting on for a moment, is uh, I think specifically about letting students choose how they might approach scientific inquiry. And so maybe I have six major uh, major inquiry or investigations that I want to pursue in the course of a semester. And so I could maybe imagine uh, if I asked them, you can dive into the scientific literature or you can build a model or you can do an experiment. Uh, so you let me know what you want to emphasize and what you, want, what you think is important in tackling this inquiry this time. I can imagine if for no other reason than through sheer chance, that some students might never choose to get into the scientific literature. And so how do you walk that line as a classroom teacher? How do you walk that line between, I wanna provide a lot of choice, but there are times where maybe I don't, it's not important to me that I prescribe this particular skill right in this moment. But if I, if, if I never prescribe it, it could be very easy to let things fall through the cracks. How do you navigate that tension as a teacher?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, and it really comes down to barriers. Um, What barriers are going to be put in place for students? Uh, And that's a huge tenet of UDL is thinking about what barriers might be in place for students and how can we remove those as instructors. So, um, in some of the trainings I've done, I I use this one slide, and I want to kind of describe it because I think it helps with with what we're talking about. so we're talking about goals and how do we um, modify our goals so that we're giving students some kind of a, a choice or a way to think about using different options or whatever. And so I use this example of um, uh, the one particular, uh, well, it's like an I can statement, right? So an I can statement. So this might say, I can successfully write a 3.8 paragraph, which apparently is some kind of paragraph, um, that compares and contrasts adjectives and adverbs. That might be a typical... Uh, I can statement that a teacher would have on their on their board, right? so we're gonna we're gonna write this paragraph and it's gonna tell us about how we can compare and contrast adjectives and adverbs. So if that's the goal, um, the goal really is not necessarily about writing a paragraph. the goal is about comparing and contrasting adjectives and adverbs. So if I'm giving that assignment, in order to be successful at that assignment, the student has to do like, a ton of things. They have to be able to do these, a whole bunch of things. So here are some of the examples. They need to be able to physically write or type. They need to be able to speak and write in English. Uh, They need to know what an essay is. They need to know what a sentence is. They need to know what a topic sentence is. They need to know how to use spelling, how to use grammar, how to code switch, how to use um, pre-planning and writing skills and revision skills. They need to be able to tune out distractions. They need to stay on. I mean, like this goes on and on and on this list and it goes on and on of all of the things that are being expected of a student when I'm just asking them to write a paragraph that compares and contrasts adjectives and adverbs. Now, am I saying that we shouldn't do that? No, absolutely not. Um, But of all of the things that are on this list, the only thing I really needed them to be able to do was to understand the content for them to be able to somehow tell me the difference between adjectives and adverbs. And so if that's my goal, then by not thinking about barriers, by just completely ignoring student variety in my classroom, I have now set students up for for some failure because of the barriers that are now in place. So if I have a student in my classroom who maybe is an English language learner, this is going to be a huge barrier. Whereas if we just sat down and they were able to like Explain it to me, or maybe they would do a Mad Lib, for example, and they could tell me that way, uh, what the difference is between adjectives and adverbs. That wouldn't be a barrier. But the way I've set it up right now, when there's no choice involved, um, and no attention paid to student variety, that's where we really run into problems.
1: Well, the the thing that I appreciate the most in this in this description. So when I so when I think about differentiation, I I like to shift to um, thinking about how can people self differentiate. How can I advocate for what I need? And that's sort of how I how I think about that process. That's really what you're describing here. And I think that that's one of the essences of UDL as I'm as I'm learning about it is spending the time to think about what are what are the all of the different ways that a student might encounter a barrier in trying to engage in the learning experience I've designed for them. This paper laid out really well that some folks in the past have been really focused on applying labels, but there are all sorts of reasons, some of which are labelable and some of which aren't labelable. They're just, they're just things that may come and go as each day passes and all of them can be barriers. So if we stop concerning ourselves about trying to apply labels to people and then try to, as a teacher, apply a solution through me to every single student and start just saying, what can I make available to everyone? You can solve a lot of those problems, some of which are not predictable. Some of them come and go just as each student's needs um, come and go throughout the course of the day. And so I really appreciate that description of, all of those barriers matter for learning, and that's why we're there. So our job is to remove those barriers or give students the tools to overcome those barriers, so
0: they can get what they need in each of those moments. So if you've got a teacher who is on the like, yeah, let's do this universal design for learning. I'm all in. I'm gonna I'm gonna do everything I can. There they are still going to have, and it was mentioned in the paper, they're they're still going to have relationships with other actors in that building. And those other actors are going to have expectations for uh, what should be done by that teacher for students and what those students should be doing in relation to that teacher and other teachers in the building. And there's going to be expectations. So uh, when a teacher goes gung-ho and they start doing things in the classroom that doesn't look like what uh, the building standards and practices and expectations have been... Uh, then uh, the the standard relationships get uh, shaken. And so uh, the paper started to take a look at this from a how do we change the system perspective uh, when these practices are so systemically inherited over time?
2: Yeah, I'll tell you, UDL tends to work best when you have some administrative support. Now, that's not to say that a a UDL lone wolf teacher in a building can't make some significant changes in their classroom. Of course they can. But it definitely works best when they've got the support of the people around them. The way that I've worked with teachers that I think has been pretty effective is saying, you know, looking at what is the the problem? Like if, if, and we can't do all the things all at once, right? So maybe I just determined that generally my students in my classes are not turning homework in enough, right? Their completion rates for homework and in-class work even is not super great. Like they're not doing great at that. So maybe I want to pick that one thing and work on that thing during this school year. And then after I've made the change that I think goes along with that, using the UDL framework to figure out what what I think the problem is um, and how I can solve that problem. So once I've got that in place and I make a change, then I can hold that change in place for the next school year. And next school year, I find something different to focus on. And I continue to do whatever the changes I made for this year, but I now add something. So we call that plus one thinking um, in UDL. So make one one change, make one addition, add one thing. Um, A lot of times this comes up in, uh, well, in higher ed at least, this comes up in um, the area of testing and assessments, right? So if all you've ever done forever and ever is – give a final exam, fine, continue to give your final exam, but also maybe you wanna offer them a different option as well. So maybe next year you add, um, students can can do a presentation or they can take a final exam, great. So now I've got two, now students have two choices. Um, Then the next school year, I maybe decide that I'm gonna add something else. So now they can choose from taking a final exam from giving a presentation or they can um, create some kind of a model to represent something or whatever, you know, like I'm adding one thing each year. And so to me, if I'm a teacher that's sort of um, on the fence about it, or I'm I'm a little anxious about making that many changes in my classroom at once, definitely start just with one thing, find one thing and make that change and, and try it out and see how it goes. Think of it like an experiment. You know, I'm going to see how this goes. If it goes great, fantastic. I'm going to keep that. If it doesn't go great, okay, well, we'll try something different. I think it's giving yourself the option. Um, and they talked about this a little bit in the, in the article, but you people need the option to fail. Like they need to be allowed to fail sometimes. And in such, you know, the high stakes world that we're in now in education, we don't get that a lot. Um, and I've really enjoyed some of the things I've seen from people who are implementing UDL um, at the school and district levels is that they feel like it's okay to fail every now and then because it's such a helpful learning experience.
0: That, I mean, that's, of course, it's so very important because that's that's just an intrinsic part of the learning process. Our students need to make mistakes and then learn how to rectify them. And so in our practice, we need to make mistakes and learn how to improve them. And we have to try things that we're not good at before we become good at them. So you know, even if it's if, even if it's a great technique, if you try it, you have to practice it before it becomes something that you are. You can actually say that you know you've 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 given it a shot. You got to try it and fail several times. Yeah, so
1: there were a lot of pieces in this paper that gave me something to think about. I particularly appreciated uh, when they presented um, opposing viewpoints uh, to describe the tension between those viewpoints or possible harmony between the perspectives. Um, But uh, as somebody who spent a lot of time uh, developing expertise in UDL, was there anything um, that you would like to prompt the authors to think more about?
2: Yeah, so one section, well, one thing actually stood out to me throughout the paper. So it it mentioned... um, and this was a part that we talked about, I think a little bit earlier, but it was mentioned something about through individual development um, of every person in the organization and et cetera, et cetera. It goes on to say basically that this is one of the ways that you can make um, lasting change within your organization is by you know soliciting the opinions and the whatever uh, ideas of everyone in the organization. But the paper and the article and the study itself really only looked at uh, three groups. They looked at students, they looked at teachers, and they looked at principals. And to me, that's not the whole school, school community. I mean, there are paraeducators or um, teacher assistants. There are other forms of administrators, like counsel, You know, school counselors. Um, here in Kentucky, we have family resource centers or student resource centers. There are the people that work in the cafeteria. There are the bus drivers. There are the families. Like, I feel like there were some groups and some constituencies that were left out. Um, And I feel like that's a big part of the school.
1: Uh, So, Jennifer, we really appreciate you taking the time to share your expertise with us and help us think a little bit more about making our classrooms uh, inclusive. If any of our listeners are interested in learning more about who you are or the work that you do, or maybe some of the resources that are available for implementing a UDL framework in their instructional environments, where can they find um, things that you do?
2: So I am on Twitter. I love Twitter. And if you are a teacher and you are not on Twitter, let me just say right now that I highly recommend it because there are a lot of uh, teachers that have online chats and they occur anytime throughout the week and you can get online and talk about things that you're super passionate about like universal design for learning, or um, there's tons of them. There's some for librarians and there's some for um, technology teach. I mean, there's all kinds of these great chats that you can interact with instructors and other teachers from not just in America, but all around the world. So anyway, I am on Twitter and I love it. Um, and my Twitter handle is at Jen. That's J E N underscore Pusateri P is in Paul USA. T in tango, E-R-I.
1: Know your students. So for our second segment, we are going to turn to an area of research that is near and dear to my heart, because we're going to be looking at metadata. Uh, So we read, can item response times provide insight into students' motivation and self-efficacy in math? Uh, So you might notice this is another research study into self-efficacy and student conceptions of their ability to do math. That's been a theme recently. Uh, The second half of the title, an initial application of test metadata to understand students' social emotional needs. This was published in Educational Measurement Issues in Practice by Soland.
0: So the the idea behind this paper is that students are taking a test, and uh, if they're taking the test digitally, then we can actually take really accurate measurements of how much time that they spend on each problem. Uh, And the question is, what what can we glean from that? If they're spending a long time on a particular problem or not spending any time on problems, is there, is, there, is there anything we can gather from that? And the, the idea is that, well, uh, students that are not applying themselves will be uh, rapidly going through that, just sort of uh, clicking answers. And students that are actually trying will be spending more time on the problems. So can we, is this, is this a valid measurement to indicate student attitudes about math? and their ability to do math just based on how much time they spend on problems
1: at the broadest level there's not a good correlation between the speed at which students are going working through a test and their achievement on that test there's not a good correlation between those two things so individually if a student doesn't spend very much time on a question on a single question as compared to how much time they spend on the other questions on that assessment they're less likely to be successful in that question. But the biggest the biggest scope, there's not as good of a correlation there. So saying that students that just click through the assessment don't do very well, while well, that is true in an isolated case, when you're looking at your group of students, it would be a poor assumption to assume that the students who finished the most quickly are the ones who did the worst. So in our whole group of items, your your generalized rate at which you move through them doesn't correlate very well with uh, with motivation. And it correlates poorly, but a little more than zero for self-advocacy. But if I look at specifically the most difficult question on that assessment, and I look at how long you spend on that question, it tells me a fair amount of information that correlates pretty well with other measures of your is your your sense of self-efficacy, and I think to a lesser degree, your motivation, if I remember correctly. So while I can't make very good predictions at the largest scale across my entire classroom, if I look at just specifically the most difficult question, that there does seem to be a split that has meaning. That, and I, that is the actual finding of this paper as I read it.
0: When items are difficult, those with high self-efficacy persist, while those without it do
1: not. And so I got really excited because this is a non-self-report measure of a student's sense of self-efficacy. Which means it's not subject to a lot of the biases and a lot of the um, assumptions that are baked into just asking a student to tell us whether or not they feel self-effective. So this, I think, is a compelling... um, a compelling advantage of computer-based and computer-delivered formative assessment specifically, I'd be willing to accept some drawbacks to giving a six-item multiple choice um, recall practice formative assessment to my students. I don't get to see the full picture of what they know related to the content, but if I do have some sense of which of these questions is the most difficult, and I have a measurement of their response process, that can tell me things about my students' sense of self-efficacy, and that can be highly instructionally actionable.
0: Well, the thing is, I don't think you need a computer to observe this. I, don't think, you, I think you give them you know, four problems and make the fourth one really freaking hard, and you can just watch your 25 kids take the test and see which ones tap out first and which ones don't. I mean, I think maybe this can tell you information about kids that weren't yours, but I don't think you need this for my classroom. Like my kids, I don't, you say it's worth the drawbacks and I go, I don't think it's worth the benefit. If you're telling me the benefit is it lets you tell you in a way that's not self-reporting, you can watch them take the tests and see.
1: And you have a general sense of, okay, I see that this student quit quickly. I see that this student is done and they're sitting with a posture that says they crushed it. Right. I can see that generally. But if I'm watching a class of 30, of 35, of 45, I can't see, especially when I get into the middle of the curve where there are many students finishing very quickly, I don't get to see those middle two quartiles. Right. And I certainly don't have a systematic systematic collection of data associated with that. So I was thinking specifically, if I was going to design interventions that leverage a knowledge of students' sense of self-efficacy, one of the first ones that jumps into my mind is using that to design their next collaborative learning structure. So if I want to make sure that I am mixing students with high self-efficacy and students with low self-efficacy measures so that I don't get two lows stuck together at making minimal progress, right. that could be really useful. But I don't have a grain of knowledge just watching them. I don't have that grain of understanding for all of my students to be able to go back the next day across all of my sections, and say, okay, these, these 16 finished first across all 40 of my students, across all five of my sections. I wouldn't know that by just watching them. I need a system to help me collect that information.
0: A computer doing it in a classroom of 35 is better than a teacher doing it in a classroom of 35. Uh, Yeah, I will concede that.
1: And so I got really excited because this is an area that's really poorly studied. These response processes is is the... is the jargony way to talk about this this kind of data collection, the response process information has usually only been used for validation discussions. Like, does this test work the way we think it does because the hard questions take longer and the easy questions take not as long. And that's about the degree to which that information has ever been used in almost any context. And so this author makes an argument for there are a lot of other things we can do with this, and they show that this correlation is there. So if I had that as an instructor, What could I do with that as a teacher? I think that, I think it's a decent list of things I could do with it. I just don't think you need to I don't think
0: most teachers need a computer to generate that list. Do you think teachers are generating that list? No. Why not? Because formative assessment is happening too infrequently in their classrooms. Oh, why is it happening infrequently? Uh, Because external pressures to to conform to a curriculum that is not a mastery achievable by their students within a time frame is greater than the teacher's sense of professional autonomy.
1: Uh, So, if I were to underline the word time in that response, so what is one of the
0: major advantages
1: of a small number of objectively scored items for recall practice? It's
0: time. That is fast. Well... The problem isn't how long it takes to make the assessment. The problem is the belief that they have to achieve something that is both impossible and bad for their students. However, if you are in a situation where you have 35 students, you can't know them all. Yeah. And so, like, uh, let me tell let me say where I think this would be right. The collegiate level, when you've got a class session of 150 kids, you're not going to be able to know all of your kids. There's, you're not going to be able to do a formative assessment on a daily, regular basis. Your scale and scope is beyond the interpersonal, observable, conclusional level. So, yeah, do it. Do it in a 150 student math class. Do it in a 150 student whatever science class. That makes total sense absolutely but I mean even in even in your high school
1: setting if we have a teacher who is doing very little formative assessment and the formative assessment they're doing is not uh, free recall right the for and yeah. I, I agree that I think the reasons are time constraints that's that was in the paper from the first se- segment was yeah. time constraints is literally listed as one of the primary barriers to making some of these changes is our response to that teacher yeah. go to free
0: retrieval or do do nothing. You're right. That's not the response. You get me. You got me. You got me. Um, because a wire monkey is better than no monkey at all. Right. Yep. So
1: here is a a quick to easy to develop, quick to consider auto auto grading piece of um, recall practice, which is not retrieval practice, but it it's better than nothing. Yeah. And I've got the research to man. Now I have to put now to put it on the in the in the links. I have it though. I know I have it. I believe you. in my file structure some, somewhere if we could offer that to teachers so they do more formative assessment, which is good for all the reasons formative assessment is good. I yeah. And we could start to show how leveraging these response processes gets at some of these socio emotional needs, like a sense of motivation, a sense of self efficacy. So even in a classroom where I am devoting substantial time regularly to formative assessment through free recall, which would be wonderful. I think I can still justify systematically delivering the, these kinds of computer-based formative assessments to get this non-report socio-emotional data if for no other reason than to triangulate what I think I'm into, what, I, what I think I'm seeing in my classroom. Intent matters. Here we are at segment number three, and we are back to a hot off the presses segment. And so we read a news article from the LA Times called California schools can no longer suspend K-8 students for using phones. Will this help or hurt learning? I think that's a terrible title
0: for this particular paper. That makes sense to me uh, because this paper isn't about phones. This no. not at all. This paper is about uh, curbing discriminatory disciplinary practices. So that's the actual issue. Now, it is about noncompliance. It is about not punishing noncompliance with suspension,
1: which because, I'm off. because those punishments are disproportionately meted out to students. From disadvantaged
0: backgrounds. to yeah. Black students, Latinx students, yeah. students from so at low SES. So um, what's funny is that like I wanted to think one thing about it because of the title, but I read it and it's not about the title. The title's a terrible title uh, and I am totally for this. That's interesting to me. Let me point out a thing uh, for you to consider
1: because I think that this is generally improvement. I believe that this points us more towards the direction of appropriate educational practice because first and foremost, uh, yeah, we gotta we gotta cut out this suspension that just. Dis- Proportionately affects disadvantaged groups. That's we got to we got to knock that nonsense out. That's a bad deal. Uh, they reference restorative justice, um, you know, trauma informed discipline. Uh, these sorts of things are are good things to think about, and we should be doing them. They even point out um, that the LA school system uh, they had banned these uh, non compliance suspensions in 2013, like quite a while ago. Yeah. Um, but interestingly. They didn't have um, these restorative justice-trained groups in schools until 2016, which sort of brings me back around to this is a top-down mandate. They are enforcing that everyone do a thing. So even though I accept that this is a positive, this is a valuable thing, it begs the question, are we actually in favor of forbidding an instructional practice? This is not an instructional practice. The reason for cited for 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 kicking these students out is to maintain instructional environments, which is in defense of the experience of the other students in
0: the classroom. This was about suspensions. Spec- and it was specified in the article that is not about other disciplinary action. Other disciplinary action is allowable in this practice. So yeah. in the case of take the phone and keep it in the aquarium, that's technically an allowable thing. And there's a conversation to be had there about that also. Okay, right. And so but the thing is if alternative uh alternative responses are still permittable for the same infractions, then this really is about what is acceptable punishment and what is not acceptable punishment. And so this is about how, when is it appropriate to suspend? Cause suspension was the con mm-hmm. the consequence that was changed here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't suspend students. That is an administrative decision, right? So mm-hmm. as far as teacher autonomy goes, this doesn't actually change teacher autonomy. True. Um, now, I must concede this does have... A, it curtails educator autonomy. It does, it does curtail administration autonomy. Are they, as they are the ones that execute this, these particular decisions, that choice is off the table for them. And so I, I totally concede this curtails administrative autonomy.
1: But that judgment was being used in a way that harmed groups in unacceptable ways. So I understand, I'm not even advocating that we should go a different direction, but we should
0: make sure we're we Acknowledge that we're removing administrator autonomy with yeah. this. Okay. I, I I see that we are, and I will say that uh, I truly don't, I, I truly am less emotionally invested in that autonomy. I'm acknowledging that. I'm not saying I'm right for that to be the case. So what I think is worth
1: pointing out is from an administrative standpoint, I'm going to go back to those two dates listed. They banned it in 2013. And then they had trauma-informed groups uh, available to support faculty in 2016. So that gets back to banning a problematic practice without the support for educators. When I say educators, I mean teachers, I mean administrators, I mean counselors, I mean school psych, I mean all of the people who are uh, playing a role in serving those students to help them better serve their priorities, which as this new article describes is helping maintain effective appropriate safe learning environments in their classrooms misunderstands what it's me- what it means to engage in discipline that's
0: focused on restorative justice stop doing something that is bad is different than do something that is good and there was a lag time between the two like we and they didn't um the discrimination didn't go away because the alternative punishments also showed the same degree of discrimination right. but the the alternative the the i think where i am able to find comfort is that the alternatives weren't as damaging as 10 days of being yep. forced outside of an ex, you know exclusion from school and so the though they continued to be discriminatory the consequences of the discrimi- discrimination the costs of the discrimination were decreased in the interim before they were trained how to do something better.
2: Make better mistakes.
0: How was the beer? I like this beer. Mm -hmm. Me too. There's something about porters that to me, tend to be really acidic. And this one is not. We were joking about if it's bad way, I hope it's smooth, but it's good and smooth.
1: Yeah. I didn't even realize how much I liked it until I got most of the way through the first one. And I looked and I was like, man, I just feel happy right now. Mm. Like I look forward to each new sip that I take. I didn't get much coffee coming through. No. Well. Which also kind of s- makes me happy.
0: Yeah. it's uh, It's mostly beer. It's it says notes of chocolate and roasted coffee but really the coffee I think that I think at the end there's a little bit of dryness and I think that's familiar of the coffee experience but it's not like a it's not like a heavy flavored thing. Yeah, it's
1: not actually a flavored beer or a coffee infused I think that you're right.
0: Thanks for tuning in. This has been another great month.
1: Remember that we want to read the things that matter to you. So if you have an article or a topic that really resonates with you, reach out to us, post it on the comments on our website, twopintplc.com, or reach out on Twitter so that we can be doing things and discussing things that matter to you. As we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.